I hope you have your Bible with you this morning and would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's right in the middle of the Bible, right after Proverbs and before Song of Solomon. And so glad to see each of you and welcome to church. Um, each time we do this, uh, baptism that is, with uh, new members joining as well at the end of the service, we try to split that at beginning and end, but boy, I tell you, I have to get ready really quick. <laughs> so if it sounds like I'm out of breath, it, it's because I am. Uh, that and the water was nice and warm, so it's like I just had a sauna and then put a suit on top of that. Uh, but at any rate, this is a great Sunday. And to be able to layer these things on top of one another, uh, not only new members joining, but believers' baptism, and then to have a fellowship meal afterward, all, it's a comprehensive package. But where we left off last week was in the book of Ecclesiastes. We covered the first 11 verses, and we're going to cover through verse 18, which is the last verse of the first chapter. We'll leave chapter 2 for next week. But let me read this to you, then we'll pause for a moment and ask the Lord's help to understand and obey, and then we'll start pulling it apart a piece at a time. Verse 12, Ecclesiastes 1 I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has been great with experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's Word, and let's us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity together with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, on this, the first day of the week, with our Bibles open in our lap. Lord, we ask that you will be our teacher and that we will be your students. Lord, open to us the truth of these things so that we can not only understand and comprehend them, but also to know what it is we're supposed to do as a result, how we are to obey, how we are to look more like you and less like ourselves. Thank you for this gathering, for what it means, for baptism and membership and fellowship too. I ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, last week on Graduate Sunday, we talked about how Ecclesiastes is a book about life and its meaning, or lack thereof. And where last week we didn't really cover much of an introduction, we just jumped right in. Today we'll take a few moments uh, to make some introductions that we didn't make last week. 
Our guide on this quest for meaning as we learn our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, depending on the translation you have, most of them don't mention this, but behind that word is the word koheleth. If you had a Hebrew, New, uh, Hebrew Old Testament, rather, Greek would be a New Testament, that's the word you would see, I koheleth. It simply means a leader of an assembly or a speaker of the assembly. The root word for koheleth means to gather or to assemble. And then the name of Ecclesiastes, what you see there is the title of the book. That's actually Greek, not Hebrew. Though the, the contents of the book is Hebrew, the heading or the name of it was added later and in Greek. And it's actually a version of the word ekklesia. Most of you know what ekklesia means. That's just a Greek word for church. That's what we are. That's what uh, was going on through the New Testament. But what this means, if you take it most literally, Ecclesiastes means one who speaks to the congregation. Or in English, the preacher. So when we get to I, the preacher, applied myself to knowledge, that's who we're talking about. It doesn't mean that he was a pastor, similar to you'd see in a church, but a guy who stands up in front of an assembly, a gathered group of people, to listen to him teach. He's a teacher, and he's preaching. Now, who is this preacher exactly? Well, traditionally, the church has long identified Solomon as this preacher. Solomon, who would be the son of David, the wisest man in all the world that ruled over Jerusalem when Israel was at its peak, where they were their most wealthy, where their rule and their power spread the furthest. The golden age of Israel's history. Um, Its contents serve as this man's memoir or last statement, one in which he tells us what he learned from his hopeless attempt to live without God. I kind of need to qualify that. It it wasn't on purpose that he decided, I will not serve God or act like I know him. But he wanted to wrap his head around the created world. He does so by explaining everything under the sun. We're not talking about heaven. We're talking about earth. So his quest for wisdom had to do with earthly wisdom, earthly understanding. It it wasn't a, a, a quest to know God more deeply. That helps us as we move along not to get that confused. However, more recently, some scholars and conservative scholars at that, that, not just liberal scholars who would try to disqualify much of what the Scriptures say, but there is this uh, more recent scholarly move away from identifying Solomon as the book's author. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One, in particular, is that he's not mentioned at all in the whole book. The previous book, to your left, Proverbs, it says specifically that he wrote it. So why wouldn't it say specifically that he wrote this? It could be that what he wrote is actually sandwiched in between the beginning paragraph and the last paragraph of Ecclesiastes. Someone else wrote it, but used his his work in order to have the main body of its contents. That's a possibility. Um, Solomon would be a great candidate for the argument of the book because the man had everything anyone could ever want and it's kind of an argument from a greater to the lesser think of it this way if Solomon, the wisest man that ever was 
knew everything that could be known about the world, had everything he ever wanted, but wasn't satisfied in what he had, then how can anyone else ever be satisfied with what they have, which was less than what Solomon had? And then there's the idea that perhaps this is a situation which was common uh, in this culture and during the time that this would have been written. And that is where the conventional practice was to write fictional biographies. I know that sounds like it couldn't be. A biography should be true, right? Well, there's such things as fictional biographies. That's where someone, for the purpose of teaching, not, not to lie or defraud anyone, but in order to stand up and present a monologue, might take on the persona of a famous person and speaks in the first person as if they were them in order to, to carry a point by means of dramatic presentation. Uh, think of the Hall of Presidents at Disney. Now, those are a bunch of robots. And as far as we have recordings back, you know, you actually hear the voice of the president saying things they actually said in time and were recorded. But further back than that, when you hear George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, that's somebody else's voice. That's not really them, but saying things they actually said. In this case, it would be like someone putting on a costume uh, with a hat. They're Abraham Lincoln. They're going to go to a school and teach third grade boys about honesty or something like that. Everybody knows they're not Abraham Lincoln, but they're acting like Abraham Lincoln to teach from his persona. Make sense? That could be what's going on with the book of Ecclesiastes. That's an option. And really, we've got a bunch of them because it doesn't say that it was Solomon. All things considered, I think it's Solomon the preacher. Literally. And it works if it's someone speaking as him. Because there's no grander example of someone who had everything and knew everything than Solomon. So either way, I think it fits. And after being introduced to its, its main character, that's the preacher, in verse 1, we looked at that last week. And then we looked at the theme of the book last week in verse 2, that is vanity or breath or vapor. Life is just the merest of breaths. It's there and it's gone. And then we're introduced to its argument. What does anyone gain with all their struggle? They work themselves to the point of death and what do they have to show for it? That's the argument of the book. That was last week too. And we heard the man out all the way until verse 11. But there's a big shift between verse 11 and verse 12. And all the English teachers may agree if not already identified. We went from someone speaking about the preacher in the third person to in verse 12 where we began reading, listening to the preacher talk himself in the first person. So that's what kind of gives some of these scholars the idea, hey, this is a narrator setting up the book in the first 11 verses. He introduces this preacher and then the preacher starts speaking for himself in verse 12 of chapter 1 and doesn't stop speaking in the first person until we get to the very last paragraph in the last chapter where the narrator comes back again and kind of finishes up. This is used in books. It's used in novels. It's used in movies. It's used in shows where you hear somebody talking about what's fixing to happen and then you start actually looking at what's happening. These are all possibilities. So... What does the preacher have to say? Well, let's look back at 
Verse 12. Read it one more time. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, which is what the narrator said in the first verse. Also mentioned he was the son of David. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So we learn the speakers or the seeker. He's the speaker and the seeker. We learn about his quest. We kind of looked at it last week, but we get into it in earnest here. And next week, even more so. And all the categories of things that he knows so much about. There was an old man one time that I worked with when I was, I had a job uh, at a direct mailing company while I was a student at Liberty. And this is one of those jobs, you know, that your dad works out for you, but you don't know what it is or any of the people that are there. You just show up on time, of course. And then you find out what you're going to do. Well, I worked with two men, and one of these men was a colorful type guy who had everybody laughing all the time. His name was Leo. I'm pretty sure he's in glory by now. But he told me that I needed to understand something. There were two things that he knew all about and that he could help me if I needed to know anything about those two things. And I said, what are they? He said, women and NASCAR. <laughs> the problem is, according to Ecclesiastes, that's just as vexing as knowing everything in addition to women. Well, not NASCAR. It hadn't been invented yet. But think about a guy who categorically knows, has a, a functional knowledge of everything, he says, under the sun. That's his quest, to understand the world under heaven by means of wisdom. So this is a thinking person's book, right? There's a lot of thought that goes into this and a lot of work to get to the point to write it all down. Now, we need to note that this man writes from his past, which means he's writing from a vantage point of age and experience. This is not a young man at this point. And it also fits what we know of Solomon, having been told by God that he could ask for anything. That's a story that I remember from way back with Sunday school and the flannel board. This guy Solomon, David's son, is given basically a blank check. He can ask for anything. He didn't ask for wealth and he didn't ask for power. He did ask for wisdom. Do you remember how he said, so that I'll know how to come in and to go out in and among the people. I'm a man of responsibility. It's a big deal. I need some help. This is too big for me. And God gives him the wisdom. In fact, God says, you won't be like anybody before you and no one behind you will be like you. You're the, the definition of wisdom when you look that up in the, in the dictionary. Being granted wisdom from God, unlike anyone else before or after him, though, did not mean that he instantly understood everything. He had the apparatus to figure things out. That's wisdom. But you've all known really smart people who couldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag. They don't know what to do with all those factoids. Wisdom is the practicality of taking that knowledge and making it useful. So you can look at two women and one baby and figure out which one's the mother. That's one of those stories of Solomon. You know, he figured it out. We'll cut the baby in half. Which mother fell apart quicker and more demonstrative than the other? That's the mother. 
Well, he'd have to have some wisdom in order to do something like that. So he still had to apply himself. He's got the wisdom, but he needs understanding, so that's what he did. We also need to understand that the kind of knowledge Solomon pursued was not divine, but human. It's under the sun. We mentioned this already, but it bears mentioning again. And wisdom under the sun is good, but it only goes so far. This world will tell you there's a creator because it didn't happen by accident. But this world can't tell you much about the Creator, that the Creator didn't tell this world specifically by way of special revelation, which is what we call our Bibles. So we not, not need confuse the fact that basically uh, Solomon is just trying to gain for himself the contents of the Encyclopedia Britannica, but not necessarily the finer points of the theological ins and outs of what we know about God. So what did the preacher discover on his quest? He gives us that in verse 13. Well, at least part of it, the first of of two before we get to chapter 2. Verse 13, And I applied my heart. My mother used to say that to me all the time. Son, you need to apply yourself. We were homeschooled. She had four of us to homeschool. And that was... That's like official language. This is your warning before your dad's involved. (laughs) Apply yourself. I'm not getting what I, I need from you. Well, he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So after him applying himself, his search is over. He calls it an unhappy business. Verse 14, I have seen everything. Not many people can say that. That is done under the sun. There's his context. This isn't heaven, this is earth. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now to be technical, as far as the Hebrew goes, reading this sentence or these two sentences in their original, it's kind of hard for us to pin down, it's uncertain, whether he means unhappy business is his pursuit of understanding, his quest, or unhappy business is what he found on his quest as he looked into all the things that man and woman does under the sun. But either way, what's perfectly clear and certain is that the preacher is unmistakably discouraged about what he's describing here, maybe even depressed about it. Uh, like we talked about the song last week. He still hasn't found what he's looking for. Though he's been everywhere, done everything, and has seen everything. In either case, whether it's his quest or what he found on it, keep this in the back of your mind. It'll serve us all through the study, and it'll keep us from getting depressed like Solomon is. Ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden... This world has not operated like it was created to. It's broken. It's under the curse of sin. It's not going to add up. You won't find one thing that ties it all together and makes sense of it. That broke. You're never going to find what you're looking for here because we weren't created for life like this. We were created for life like on the other side of eternity. In the presence of the Lord over the sun. 
Don't forget that. That's going to make sure we don't misappropriate all of what we're reading. So in either case, man's struggle or his pursuit, the whole of creation is cursed. Does that mean, though, that his quest or our education is worthless or to try to become smarter is dumb? No. There's a lot of good things under the sun. There's plenty of room to make careers out of knowing, specializing in certain things. Don't let his describing this as unhappy business mean that it's worthless business because he's going to come back later and say that there are things of worth here. Um, The quest for knowledge is one of our God-given tasks. We're made in his image, so we cannot help but ask big questions. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to read that he says that God put eternity in our hearts, an eternal size hole in our hearts. Our, our heads and our hearts that can't be filled up and satisfied with things in this earth because they're temporary. They never last. We've got a, an eternal longing and temporary things can't satisfy it. He'll tell us that later. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we ask the big questions even though this earth doesn't contain the answers to it. Even lost people ask the same questions. None of us can help it. And like Solomon, the wisest man in the world, most of us, for most of the time, are absolutely befuddled by those big questions. We hear some of the same phrases. I don't know if you're paying attention from last week to this week, but same phrases from the first paragraph, like under the sun. We've discussed that many times by now. Uh, Vanity, which means vapor. But there's a new one here. A new metaphor, striving after wind. Or chasing the wind. And there'll be more of these things that he uses to try to help us understand what he's saying. And what he's saying is, hey, this is waste. It's vanity. Philip Ryken said on this verse here in his book, From what the preacher had seen, based on his personal experience, trying to figure out the meaning of life was like trying to hold the wind in your hand kind of makes me think of Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind. To hear another recording agency owes the preacher royalties. And we'll see another one next week. We'll talk about the birds then. And turn, turn, turn. But look what he says at at, at the end here. And, And within mind that, you know, atheists think this way. I even wrote down a Richard Dawkins quote that human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. So from the most famous of atheists who are alive today back to the wisest man in all the world, the preacher concludes the first stage of his miserable quest with a proverb in verse 15. You'll notice that that's indented. It's supposed to be looked at as poetry. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That's like saying when something's broke, it can't be fixed. And when something's not there, it can't be counted. Be like me telling my kids, hey, count all the, uh, count all the, the, the gummies or chicken nuggets. They like those things. They're made out of them. Um, <laughs> count all the chicken nuggets in your hand, your empty hand. Oh, Dad, my hand's empty. Count them anyway. There's nothing there. 
You heard what I said. That's what he's trying to say. You can't count what's not there. So if meaning is not to be found on planet earth, his quest to find meaning in this world is not going to amount to anything. I can't count it because it's not there. And what I found is broken and I can't fix it in order to count it. It can't be repaired. Some things in life are crooked. Not in the sense that they're immoral or devious, but in the sense that they're so bent out of shape they can't be made straight. Any of you ever come across something like that in life? It's hopeless. Now, there's plenty of times where one guy looks at it and says it's broke. That's junk to him. It's treasure to somebody else. They fix it make it work. But there's some things in this life, especially ourselves, that just can't be straightened. Many things in this life are broken beyond repair. They can't be fixed any more than we can fix a mashed up fender on the car. I've mashed up a few cars. First one I had, I got my license on a Monday. This was a 66 Mustang Coupe. It had power steering when it was running. But in the midst of a turn with power steering, which you can do like this, and a big gulp in this hand, making a left turn through two lanes of traffic, didn't stop in the median because nobody's coming. And that's where it stalled. I let off the gas, put my foot on the gas. It clunked off, and that steering that was so easy spun around quick and headed straight for a hole without a guardrail. There's a guardrail there now. I almost wanted to sign it, put my name with you owe me for this guardrail after the tow truck took my Mustang from on its top where you can see all the bottom of it. I had to crawl out the side. And those old gas tanks don't seal off too good. The gas dripping everywhere was really what was, was scary. So I've wrinkled up cars. But I'm here to tell you, even with the best body man, it's never going to be like it was when it rolled out of Detroit. They can cut out what's wrinkled put a new piece in or take one off and put another one on. But the paint that they paint on nice and fresh isn't going to look like the paint that sat in the sun or been washed a few times. It's never right. Now that's where this illustration breaks down. What we did when we sinned in the garden made this world broken and irreparable. Unless, of course, Jesus took care of it himself, dying on the cross in our place. This world can be redeemed even better than it was when it was created. Because we have memory of the struggle in between. But as far as things on this planet, once they're broke, they're broke. They can't be fixed. There are people we can't manage, problems we can't solve, stress, pressure, grief, pain we cannot escape. And sometimes, this is the most miserable of it all. Trying to fix it makes it even worse. You know of situations with people that you love and there's a misunderstanding I think misunderstanding is one of two of the things that are most hurtful under the sun. Because you know what you know, but you know what they know is something other than what you know, and you can't get on the same page. And you can't do much about it. The other most painful thing is wanting to be with someone that you can't be with because either they left you or they went home to heaven. But missing someone... Wanting to be with, and you can't. These are the things Solomon's talking about. It's a very unhappy business to see how the world lives with broken stuff that can't be fixed. 
or meaning that can't be accounted for because it's not there. So sometimes trying to fix it doesn't even work. Like an account that won't balance, we can't make life add up under the sun. Not without the answer to the equation from the Lord. So next, if you look at verse 16, it sounds like the preacher has a heart-to-heart with himself after the first leg of his quest. Now remember, under the sun is cursed. So what he says in verse 16, I said in my heart, that's his heart-to-heart, I have acquired great wisdom. He did, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. That's true. And my heart has had great experience. He did, of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. So same conclusion, striving after wind, but there's a new category. He says this also. What's the also? Well, he had wisdom, but then he decided to study madness and folly. The opposite of wisdom. And it looks like the words madness and folly here in Ecclesiastes are the same Madness and folly that we see in the Proverbs, used elsewhere in the Scripture, previous book. And in that case, it explains the craziness, the foolishness of disobedience to God or disobedience to the natural world we live around. If you you saw somebody, you know, jump off of a skyscraper, that'd be foolish. There's laws in this world that would say, don't do that. Uh, We seem... To grow up and show all this promise through our, our young ages as children, we're learning vocabulary and obedience. We get to a certain age and the whole world just knows that's when you throw all caution to the wind and you act like physics don't matter. You push your car as fast as you can through a turn. I did that too. That was another car I wrecked. I ran through a stop sign then. But... This guy Solomon, he's, he's quantifying all the things we do. And their life has its amount of foolishness. And what does he say? Foolishness. Got to go back and look at my plate. Folly. Folly isn't the weight of folly is foolishness. And um, as far as what he says about it all here. It's basically a moral approach. So he's adding to the category of I had wisdom and understanding. Information about stuff and how it works. Now he's focusing on the difference between right and wrong. How there's a right way to do something and how there's a foolish way to do something. And at the end of that, as if he's trying to, okay, maybe the the key to unlock it all is found in that area. And he says, no. Now that he knows the difference, um, unlike G.I. Joe, knowing's not half the battle. There's no battle at all. It doesn't answer his question. Did this renew his joy for his quest? No. Did it make him a better person to know right from wrong? No. Or give him purpose in life? No. Just more striving after the wind. And then one more proverb. Look at that. Verse 18. You see how it's indented a bit more? This is another one of those little pithy statements Proverbs is full of. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. How many of you would agree with that? 
the more you know, the more there is to be sad about. Some people would think, boy, if I knew it all, I'd be the most powerful person on the planet. I could solve all riddles. I could take advantage of whoever I wanted to. Why do I need power? Why do I need wealth? If I know it all, I can have both of those. But that's not what he says. For in much wisdom is much vexation. It's like it's miserable to know too much. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is why people say ignorance is bliss. Right? Can you remember? People say this often. The last time he said, hmm, I think I'd just rather not know. What is the thing that you say to some people? No, no, no. You don't really need to know how the sausage is made. Right? How many of you have ever looked up something on YouTube interesting like how hot dogs are made? That's the same as sausage. Or one time I just thought after looking on the back of one of my favorite cans of beanie weenies. So what is this mechanically separated chicken all about? They'll show you how machines, robots, make the contents of your beanie weenies. Sometimes ignorance is, is bliss. Sometimes it's an age type thing. Ben is not in here, but I thought I'd talk about him. And this, just, this is to help differentiate a position of not wisdom, but having experiential knowledge and then not having experiential knowledge. It wasn't long ago, I, I just sat and observed Benjamin eating a drumstick. Not a chicken leg, but the ice cream cone. You know, with the, it's got the chocolate on top and then they roll it in nuts before they stick it in that bag. They're, they're really good. I like the ones with the caramel stripe in the middle the best. But Ben's eating one, and he opens the package right there. Wrong way to do it. There's a right way to open the end with the pointy part up. And then once it's opened, you can kind of spin the cone around, and any of the peanuts that are loosely attached will go ahead and fall off in the bag. Then you can pull it out, and you've got your ice cream cone, and you can throw away the bag with crumbs that you don't want on the floor, right? Ben just opens it all the way down the side, and... His version don't have the peanuts because he's can't have peanuts. Same with uh, David there. Me and Michael and the rest, we eat the peanut version. His had the cookie crumbs all stuck to it. So the cookie crumbs are on the table, some in his lap and some on the floor. Then he begins to eat it. And that's another thing you got to watch because that chocolate coating is hard and you got to bite it the right way so a piece of it doesn't fall, you know, on your lap. Because the way they make that, it's liquid at room temperature. It's hard in the freezer. So as soon as it falls off, it instantly begins to melt into your clothing. I'm seeing people nod their heads. They know that this is... See, you've seen how this is done and you have wisdom. Now, Ben, it falls down. He doesn't recognize it until later and it's thoroughly melted into his shirt. So he wipes it off with his hand. And now that it's on his hand, he wipes it on his pants. So not only is there crumbs on the table, on the floor, but there's chocolate on his shirt and his pants. As he continues to eat it, he gets it, you know, everywhere. But there's daylight, which means we play now, we clean up later. So he just leaves it all around and on his hands so that dirt will show where it needs to be cleaned better by the time we make him come in, put his shoes on and his shirt that he took off, and take a bath. All the while I'm watching this, I'm very amused. 
the difference between all that is I've eaten a lot more of those than him. And I have this problem. I know what a clean house looks like. And I will work hard to not make work that has to be cleaned up. I'm one of these that prevention of mess is far easier and efficient than making a mess and cleaning it up. There's some people I know that say, that's what vacuums are made for. And I say, I don't ever want to use a vacuum unless I have to use a vacuum. I don't want to use a vacuum. Hey, I love this vacuum so much, I'll make a mess just to use the vacuum. Some people might. Or they make their living. You know, the liquid money on the side of the septic tank cleaner. But that's his job, right? So all of this is just to say, you do reach a point where the more you know, I've talked to police officers after years of working and, and they confide in me that it's difficult when you work with people who routinely take advantage of the law, break the law, abuse the system chronically, to not think of them as less than the image of God that they're truly made in. Because their, their wisdom, just of what they do, knows that there are certain people who, given the chance, will do the wrong thing. And it's hard not to look at that person like you do people who, given the chance, will most of the time do the right thing. There are counselors that I've known that talk about what it's like to try to go home after they've helped someone go through the absolute swamp of their marriage and counseling. And then try to leave all that on their desk and go home and and not have it in their head. Pastoral ministry is not a lot different sometimes. There are things you know about the people you're talking to. Only because you've spent enough time. And this is a hospital, isn't it? Well, people don't need a doctor. If we're perfect, we don't need this. But this is what Solomon's talking about. At a certain point, you know enough about people. You know enough about yourself that you know that it's broke. It's crooked. It can't be straightened. And we can't account for what makes sense because nothing does. So, he says, in much wisdom, there's much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. So, what's his point? This week's study is actually less positive than last week. I got some feedback on last week. Wow, what a graduation sermon. Say, well, thank the preacher, not me. Koheleth. It's his fault. But at first, the preacher's honesty, somewhat in what we looked at last week, is refreshing. You're like, yeah, that's good stuff. It's true. But after a while, it gets depressing. But don't forget that that's actually the purpose of the author. He's on purpose aggravating us into thinking about big things. He's making it sound awful, almost to the point of exaggeration, in order to make or get our attention and maintain it. The preacher didn't know it yet, but at the end of our big questions, God will be waiting for us in the person of His own Son. What did Isaiah use to describe that man? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? You talk about a life who on paper, minus... His resurrection and ascension it was the epitome of vanity. He spent his whole life teaching people, most of them who walked away, all but one of his disciples ran and fled. One of them, Judas, betrayed him. And then his own people worked with Rome to get him killed. I mean, I don't know how else to describe that as, 
is vanity. All of it was vanity. A little tiny breath and it's gone. And this was the Son of God. So, Riken tells us, quoted him earlier, we should not leave Ecclesiastes 1 without remembering that Jesus entered into all the vanity and vexation of life under the sun to show us the wise way to live. He knew what he was getting into and he came anyway. If we follow Jesus and his wisdom, we will not try to bend what is crooked back to our own purpose, but humbly submit to the way God wants things to be, just as Jesus did when he went to the crooked cross and died for our sins. This earth has nothing more crooked than that cross. That's broken. That the world would murder its maker. You, you have no grander example of exactly what the preacher is on about. Hebrews 11 tells us that God rewards those who seek Him. James 1 says if we lack wisdom, we should ask and God will give it to us. So wis- there's, not, there's not the problem with wisdom. God's wisdom. And it's not a problem that we're searching for the truth. Those are good things. It's just that we won't find it under the sun. We will find it elsewhere. Ecclesiastes' bottom line... And this gets into next week. This is kind of your sneak peek. Life in God's world under the sun is a gift. It's not meant for gain. He knows you can't take any of it with you. So it's not meant to be gain. It's not meant as a contest. Let's see who on this planet can make most of what I left on this planet in raw materials. And the one who gains the most... I'll put him in charge. No, he came to die to free us all from sin, take us with him to heaven. So that's not what this earth is all about. Only certainty in life, and this is where it really gets depressing in a few chapters, under the sun, the only certainty about life is death. But death is that that ultimate leveling of the playing field. Rich, poor, whoever you are, everyone dies. And understood correctly, it can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. I don't know how else to say that, but that's really going to be a big point moving forward. And that's you take home for today. Under the sun is a gift. It's not for gain. And if you look at it as a gift, you can have a vacation all day long. Lunch is a vacation. Five o'clock is a vacation. Um, I remember at, uh, in Virginia, we didn't, we didn't call uh, the senior group Joy. We called them Forever Young. And I remember sitting next to a um, lady that taught me in Sunday school. And she said, well, just got done with the best part of the day. Headed for the second best part of the day. I said, what, what's the second best part of the day? She said, nap time. <laughs> so we'd been together to eat. Eating and napping. For, you know, those are vac- They're meant to be enjoyed during our breath, which is here and then it's gone. Just to take a walk in the woods, to watch bugs do what they do, to smell flowers, to watch a child eat a drumstick cone. That's meant for joy. Um, the other day, Ben was out in the backyard and we had this fence line with a bunch of crepe myrtles and these are the ones with the white blooms. They hang over the fence and I'm sitting there in a chair and he's grabbing the 
the end of the branch that's in his reach and yanking on it and it looks like a snow globe just blowing around the whole yard and he's having a ball and I'm laughing because I'm worried about something at work these things are meant to be enjoyed all of it uh, if, if, if you don't say thank God for this world but instead say thank God it's five o'clock and probably looking at it wrong. You're looking at your job as gain, maybe, when the job's actually a gift. As bad as it is. It's broken. It's crooked. It can't be right. But it's still a gift. He gave you time on this planet to honor Him. He gave you time on this planet to gift you things. And He gave you time on this planet to tell other people about Him. Which is the key to unlock the meaninglessness of life. We're here as a witness. We'll get into that later on. But only with Jesus will life add up. Apart from Jesus, it cannot. As far as this side of eternity, it will probably not add up to what you had hoped or even what you expected in your youth. But how could it? It's broken. We've said this a hundred times. The world is cursed. So we leave the final balancing to Jesus, including our own personal account, which he reconciled with his own blood. He'll take care of your paperwork with the Father. He'll settle that account. So God's grace through Jesus doesn't make the meaninglessness go away. But this side of heaven, under the sun, it can make vanity enjoyable. Some of the silliest, stupidest, simplest things might hold the most joy if we can get out of our system the idea that we're here only to pile it up it's another song right money get back jack keep your hands off my stack don't don't keep singing the lyrics there's a bad word in there <laughs> but again another band who owes the preacher royalties i hope this is helpful to you you have to trudge through the the bad but to shake yourself awake long enough to know this is supposed to be enjoyable. In the middle of our sentence here, if eternity is heaven, then for the saved person, what is this? It's hell. But you can enjoy your time in hell because God's fingerprints, His creativity, His wondrousness, His common grace, it's seen in all sorts of places. Underneath this dark cloud of brokenness which is the curse of sin he came to the earth to kill that so that he can take us away to a new heaven and a new earth so don't look for meaning here it's somewhere else while you're here enjoy what God gave you as a gift and tell anybody that'll slow down that you know the God over the sun who will save and redeem those broken under the sun and with that Let's pray and then we'll transition to uh, our confirmation of membership candidates. So if you need to go retrieve a child or, or anything, now is the time to do that. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for our portion in your word. Lord, would you use these things, that, these musings of, of a man who in all points sounds depressed but Lord he's looking for his answers in the wrong place 
Lord, would you fix our gaze on you? Would you solve riddles with the image of your son? Would you give us a smile from enjoyment long enough to cheer the heart of someone else? Perhaps to have them wondering what we have that they do not in order to tell them the answer to life's most important question. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for things to enjoy while we're here. Knowing that you didn't enjoy very much when you were here. Your eyes were fixed on Calvary so that our eyes could be fixed on you and your Father. Lord, thank you for this time. We ask that you bless what we're about to do. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, what I'm going to do is ask our candidates for membership, if they would, to line up front here in front of everyone. We won't make you say anything, we promise. But folks do want to get a look at you. And in a moment, I'll ask you to raise your hand when I read your name. So if you're a candidate for membership, come on up this, this time. There you go. No one wants to be first. Everybody wants to be second. Except for later when we go eat the food, right? Someone will be first there. So let me read to you these names. And while I'm looking for my my piece of paper, what we do at Wake Chapel as far as those who wish to join this church by way of membership, we have a membership class. It goes for eight weeks. Some of you sitting in the pews have been through this class. And uh, we talk about all kinds of things like Uh, how we structure our worship, what we believe doctrinally, what does it require to volunteer to help with child care, and so on and so forth. But it's it's an orientation, but it's it's long enough that we actually have time to get to know each other. It's helped me tremendously uh, because a lot of these folks that come in to join Wake Chapel are moving here. They didn't necessarily grow up here. So I'm going to read to you the names of our new members with uh, their families. I think everyone is down here. And if they're not, and I read a name that's not accounted for, then uh, there's grace for that. I don't have to spell these. There's grace for that, too. But um, we have here Ed Bohr. And when I read your name, raise, raise your hand so everybody can see who you are. Also, Chester and Nancy Cook. There you go. Cheryl Cuthbertson. Robin Daniel with Jonathan and Timbo. All right. Steve and Karen Davis. Michael and Courtney Luthie with Caleb and Andrew. Bart and Charlotte Riddick. And C.J. Whitehurst. You already met him early, earlier. And then we have Stephen and Jamie Schneider who are unable to be here today. They will join another week. But what we do after the new members class is we interview these candidates by means of an application which gives us information about their testimony, their background, if they're members of a previous church, all sorts of things. And then uh, either myself, another staff member, or one of our deacons interviews them to take any questions, to answer any of theirs, any questions we may have after looking at the application. And then we recommend to the body these who've come for membership. And the church body itself gets the final say. We call it a confirmation. So what I'll do is read off uh, the actual names of each that are here for membership. Because with some little children, you're not voting them into membership yet. 
they'll do so like CJ is. He's been through class before as uh, Greg and Cheryl's son, but now he's graduated and he wants to become a member. So sometimes you have portions of family, sometimes uh, you don't. But here is who the vote is for. And then in a moment I'll say, all happy to receive these if they've come. Make it known by saying amen. That'll be your opportunity to confirm. And then we'll say, um, joined as named. And go eat. Are you ready? Hear your names. Ed Bohr, Chester Cook, Nancy Cook, Cheryl Cuthbertson, Robin Daniel, Steve Davis, Karen Davis, Michael Luthie, Courtney Luthie, Bart Riddick, Charlotte Riddick, and C.J. Whitehurst. All those happy to receive these as they have come, make it known by saying, Amen. Amen. All opposed? There are none. Carried as ordered. So what we'll do, we'll let these folks go first uh, down to the fellowship hall. Try to find them. Don't interrupt them while their mouths are full. But introduce yourself to them. That's what this lunch is for. This is what it's to celebrate. And when God grows His church, like we've seen in the book of Acts, as the gospel goes out, the church gets full. And we thank the Lord for this. We're growing. And uh, there's nothing else to be said but to thank the Lord for this and for the food. And uh, instruments will play and we're dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Again, we thank you. You have been gracious. We have been well-fed in word. Lord, we ask that you bless the food as we're well-fed our bodies. Lord, bless each one of these families and bless this larger church family as we bring them into our fellowship, adopt them as our own for accountability, for encouragement, for growing together, for figuring out what your word means and obeying it together. Lord, you're the one we give the credit to this. This is not us. This is all you. And because of that, we praise your holy name. Lord, thank you again for our time together over a meal. And we ask this in your name. Amen.